you know, I was in my early 20s. I was in the investment world. My job was going great. I had lots of friends, kind of was living as if I was invincible. And then 9-11 hit and it really shook me up. It, um, it made me stop and wonder about my own mortality. This is the thing that forced me to say, I need to figure out the big questions of life. Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we see how skeptics flip the record of their lives. Each podcast, we listen to someone who has once been an atheist or skeptic, but who came to believe in God and Jesus to their own surprise. There are different reasons or catalysts that may stop someone in their tracks to reconsider their own skepticism towards God and faith, towards their own presumptions, their own way of looking at the world. One of these catalysts is an unexpected, sudden, or significant event in the world. Disruptive events or circumstances often demand our attention. They raise our awareness beyond the mundane, normal day-to-day activities to potentially consider the larger, deeper, big questions of life. Those grand moments can sober us to think about our own beliefs, our direction, our purpose and meaning, what we think about death and beyond. Some people take those interruptions seriously as an opportunity to look more closely at their own lives. Others merely move on without deep regard or consideration for what it might mean for themselves, pursuing business as usual. In today's story, Brian Causey, a successful financial trader, was one of those who experienced an event that rocked the world as an invitation to his own beliefs, to examine them, to examine his own lives, to open the door to the possibility of belief beyond skepticism. It rocked his world. It jump-started his intellectual quest to look for a better explanation for his own life, to possibly trade what he knew and experienced of reality for something different or something more. It compelled his search for the existence of God. I hope you'll come along to meet Brian, to hear him tell his journeying from disbelief to belief. And I hope you'll stay to the end to hear Brian's advice to skeptics who may be considering the possibility of searching beyond their skepticism and his advice to Christians on engaging with those who don't believe. Welcome to the Side B Podcast, Brian. It's so great to have you with me today. Thanks, Jana. So great to be here. Look forward to it. Wonderful. Before we tell your story, which I can't wait to hear, uh, why don't we uh, learn more about who you are today and um, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you live, your family. Yeah, sure. My name is Brian Causey. Uh, My day job is in the investment world where I have kind of a strange and unique opportunity to work with some of the biggest pools of money in the world, mostly like teachers, pension funds, and things like that. Um, my side hustle is as an armchair theologian and an author. Um, I get to live in Seattle, Washington with the most amazing woman I know, my wife, Carly, our two-year-old son, Blaze, and Brody the Bernadoodle. The Bernadoodle. Uh, that's a, obviously a combination of <laughs> He's half Golden Bernie. Retriever and Bernese. He's Bernese Mountain, Mountain Dog, Dog Poodle Mix, yes. Yeah. And he's in dire need of a, a summer cut. It's too hot over here now. <laughs> 
So as we're getting started, Brian, let's, in order to shape the fullness of the story, let's go back to your childhood. Tell me about life uh, growing up, your family, your friends, your culture, your community. Tell me what life was like. Was it with God? Was it without God reference? Uh, were you from the, the Northwest all mm -hmm. along? Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I grew up in a very loving home. I mean, my family is all very close still. My parents are headed towards their, I think, 57th wedding anniversary. Um, but uh, growing up, religion just wasn't much of a consideration for us. We didn't really talk about God or things like that. I kind of joke around for uh, with others that we were kind of like the Scandinavian countries. You know, we had a foundation of Christian faith, but it wasn't really part of our daily life. Um, in many senses, I was just a classic nun, N-O-N-E, which is in the lingo of polling, just means that I would have answered none of the above if I was asked what religion I belonged to. I think I had probably a, a faint sense of the spiritual. I mean, I wasn't a materialist. I, I knew that much. I believe there was some kind of greater power out there, but I didn't know what it was or if it wanted anything from me. At the same time, probably if you would have pressed me back then, I would have believed in almost anything, I suppose. UFOs, telepathy, reincarnation, that all religions were paths to God. Um, I was spiritual, but not religious. I didn't, you can't pin me down. You can't put me in a box. I didn't, and I think that's one of the attractions probably of being a nun in N-O-N-E again, um, none of the above is you can't pin that person into a, a set of beliefs or doctrines or um, attach them to a certain organization. I think that's part of the attraction and why the nun movement is is so rapidly rising in, in all the polling data. I think I'd organized religion just held no appeal to me at that point in my life. I mean, it, in reality, I think I belonged to a religion of one where whatever I said or did or thought was acceptable. And that concepts like God and faith were just an accessory to my life that I could put on or take off whenever I felt like it. Uh, I could change my standards in line with my behavior such that I could never be guilty of anything. And that was very appealing to me uh, growing up. So you had this kind of sense of self, independence, uh, picking and choosing, whatever fits at the time. Was Were there any um, Christians that intersected your world at all during elementary school or maybe middle or Gosh, even high school? Really not much. Um, mm. It's a very secular community up here in Seattle. Honestly, the only people that took religion seriously growing up were my Mormon friends. You know, their yeah. lives seemed to revolve around the church schedule and calendar. Um, but yeah, there weren't really many Christians that spoke into my life at that point in time. None that could really give me any hints of life's real direction. And so I kind of felt like I was floating like a wave in the ocean without an anchor. Hmm. But you enjoyed the freedom of it. I did. I did. I think that that freedom was, you know, was the best way for me to enjoy the fascinations of life. Um, you know, I, I, at that point in my life, enjoyed the party scene and enjoyed um, kind of wanting to live forever as an adolescent. You know, I think it's interesting that you had 
in terms of uh, an embodied picture of what religion was, it was Mormonism, which I know that there's some really beautiful and wonderful people and very moral people, but that religion um, as a, an embodied picture for you probably spoke to rules and regulations and do this and don't do that. And I would imagine that that kind of pushed against your sense of freedom and your ability to pick and choose whatever you wanted. Again, you, you said you didn't like organized religion. There was something very off-putting about it. But what did you think religion was at that point? Uh, a construct of some sort? Uh, a hobby? How would you describe <laughs> religion? Yeah. Maybe as like a series of protocols, you know, things that you do. Mm. Um, okay. uh, might as well call it an exercise routine. Um, okay. Are things you do, but... Um, uh, the truth or whether it was true or not, I didn't really think about that much at all. I don't know why, but it just seemed like these were the steps. If you were, if, if you were a Christian or a Mormon or, or whatever, you, these were the steps that you took because you belonged there. Um, there was no why it was all the, what, and what do you do, but not the, why are we doing it? And, and why are we committing, um, to something like that? It just didn't seem attractive to you, right? Much I less wanted autonomy. Much of truth. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted. Yeah. I mean, okay. uh, I, I wanted self-reliance. I mean, that the if 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 I was going to worship any god, and I didn't call it myself, it would be the god of self-reliance. I wanted to be in control. I mean, I wanted to, um, I wanted to have the power over my life. I wanted to be financially secure, such that I could do anything I wanted. Um, those were the things that I really pursued. Um, it wasn't, I didn't pursue any other authority, but my own. I, I think sometimes that seems so very attractive to so many people, this idea of independence and autonomy, autonomy, and that, that, that there are only positives that come from that mm. way of thinking or being or living. You mentioned though, that you, in some sense, you felt like you were floating, like not grounded in something. Mm. I wonder if you felt any negative implications or ramifications from this kind of sense of autonomy. Did it, did it make you feel isolated or too isolated um, that you didn't have a place of sense of belonging or, or were you just kind of the, the common teenager who, oh, Hey, <laughs> I'm just having fun, live, eat and drink and be merry. And you know, for yeah. tomorrow we die. There was definitely a time in my teenage life where I I looked at the meaning question. I realized I didn't know what life's meaning was. And I fell into a depression and such so bad that I, I really thought about suicide quite a lot, almost every day. And I kind of... Uh, 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 dis, I, went, I went out of all sports and kind of... Uh, went into my mind, almost re retracted into my mind, stayed in my room a lot and pondered the meaning question. And what did it matter if I ended my life? You know, there was no meaning to it. You know, I was going to die and maybe be as part of the circle of life. And um, that was a real waking up for me. I think that was one of the, of the many moments in my spiritual life that, that led me to who I've become today is I went through a, a pretty bad period. And I did realize at the end of that period, after I got out of it, was that um, 
maybe two realizations. One, many other people have had this bout of, of doubt and meaning in their life. Um, and that they, so I, I, I realized that there were other people in the same boat as me that got out of it. And that was very helpful for me to, to basically mature in that direction. And maybe the other takeaway for me was I realized I couldn't solve this myself. I couldn't keep looking inward and find the answers. I needed to start looking elsewhere. I needed advice. I needed good news, really. Um, I needed to find what other people had thought about the big questions of life because I was struggling and I needed, I needed some help. So when you're in that place of openness of needing help, did you consider wondering whether there was a God who would have something to say about the meaning in your life or any other religious person or where did you look for when you started thinking you needed to look outside of yourself? Mm -hmm. I think the, there were a few moments in my life where, um, I started to look toward God, um, or what, what I thought might've been God. And I, one class I took in college was really helpful and was called the philosophy of religion. And that introduced me to all of the faith beliefs. It introduced me to atheism too. And we started with atheism in that class and read, um, you know, the classic atheistic thinkers and some current day thinkers. And I was persuaded initially that this was, um, that this made a lot of sense to life. And then we countered that with great thinkers of believers too. And so you want to, you want to hear both sides of the story, (laughs) just like this podcast. And that's what that class was doing. And at the, but at the end of that, I don't think I really came to a conclusion. Um, I still was waffling in, in these great themes that the university system was, um, showing me, you know, everything from relativism, which is maybe the sneakiest of them all, that truth is subjective and that we each define our own truth. That that's definitely what I believed heading out of, uh, out of college, but also secular humanism and naturalism. Those were both huge themes in the university system that really influenced the way that I thought about things. And I think at the end, by the time I graduated, I was still in this camp of anything goes that, you know, all religions are basically the same, that freedom and autonomy are always good and should never be impaired. Um, that we each determine our own morality, um, that we can define truth for ourselves and that it's okay to believe in whatever you want to believe. I kind of, I was in that camp. I think, I didn't think I, uh, there were any good reasons to question these things. Um, and I wasn't the only one that felt this way. I think a lot of my friends, a lot of my teachers probably were in this same cultural current. And again, with no real anchor, I just got swept up in that current too. So basically what you decided as a teenager, relativism, autonomy, they were only reinforced as you grew older. And the questions of meaning, I guess that would have been Mm self-determined, right? By the time you got out of college, it was still the same. The answer was still the same. Um, yeah. that you, even though you had looked externally, I suppose, at, at other worldviews or even considered what naturalism, atheism was, 
what secular humanism was, relativism. You were learning more about it, but your since our view of the world and of life became more educated, but existentially the same, yes. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. And so, I mean, it took, it took a moment. It took a, a real game-changing moment in my life to shake up that worldview. And for me, what was that? it was 9-11. It was 9-11. Okay. And so um, the terrorist attacks just really were shocking to me as to everybody, I'm sure. Um, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was in the investment world. My job was going great. I had lots of friends. Kind of was living as if I was invincible. And then 9-11 hit and it really shook me up. It, um, it made me stop and wonder about my own mortality. I don't know why this had such a big effect on me um, being in Seattle so far away from the terrorist attacks themselves. But this is the thing that forced me to say, I need to figure out the big questions of life. I need to dive into the, what happens after I die uh, because I don't know. I am feeling a little naive here. And so the the Sunday after 9-11 was the first time I really went to church. And um, I was invited by a friend, thankfully. And I'm so thankful that that church was um, right next to the University of Washington. So it meant that it was it had very good connections to a lot of academia. The library at this church was stock full. It was, um, I didn't know churches had libraries. And many don't still, but this one did. And and it allowed me to do a lot of personal self-reflection because it had things on audio tape back then where I could, you know, pop in a tape or a CD on my commute. Um, I could check out books for free. And so I did a lot of that. I took the alpha class, which they offered, and I really just dove in to trying to answer all of these tough, tough questions. And I had a lot of tough questions. I mean, um, faith and doubt, science and religion, evolution, the age of the universe, miracles, lots of questions. And they had thoughtful responses to all of these, not just from you know, the Christian perspective, but they would have interviews with scientists, uh, world-class scientists that would come and speak in person at the church and have debates, um, have talks, all sorts of things that were just eye-opening to me. And so um, not only did I approach this whole challenge after 9-11 by diving in, but for um, uh, whatever strange reason, 9-11 also was this turning point in this new movement called New Atheism. And the New Atheists kind of created a publishing sensation with all of these books that hit after 9-11, basically saying that, you know, a religious believer is illogical, unscientific, and probably harmful for the world. And uh, that really blew through academia. It blew, it blew through the media and really made a lot of people um, quite influenced by their thinking. And I had to kind of battle with all of those thoughts too, not only the classic thinkers and my own questions, but um, a really in-your-face style approach of, of these skeptics. That's an interesting moment historically and as it intersects with your life because it was the moment that set you on a search, an intellectual search, but at the same time it was almost like this tsunami of, of uh, intellectual atheists who were coming against 
or what you were finding, I'm sure you were wrestling with both sides of, of I mean, those are very diverse perspectives, you know, one claiming one thing and another really piling on uh, from the other side. How are you processing through those really dichotomous views mm -hmm. at the same time? It was really hard. <laughs> it was hard um, because you have a, a lot of the classical, maybe non-Christian thinkers that are that are probably pulling more at your the strings of your brain, I suppose, you know, they're, they're not going after the emotional questions, but then these new atheist authors are going after the emotional side a little bit harder. And both are, are, um, really challenging. They're compelling and maybe, um, rhetorically persuasive. Uh, so stepping back and trying to figure out how to approach this entire problem. And for me, I had a friend that just asked me the, the, the question that narrowed, narrowed down my search and it blocked all of this other noise that I was, that was coming into my filters. His question was, who do you think Jesus was? And it's such a basic question, but it's the question, I think the most important one that we all have to ask. And that just narrowed my search because if I could um, address that question, then it would frame all other questions. It was the most important thing that I needed to attack. And so that's how I blocked a lot of the other challenges that were and noises that were coming my way. So I started reading the Bible, um, read the gospels, uh, really came to know and love this character, Jesus. And at the same time, doing all the other research on the side, which said, you know, there's a lot of great reasons to think Jesus existed, that he is who he said he is. And here's all the context of a first century Jew, which are really important. And here's all the context from the Old Testament that sort of brings everything into light once you consider Jesus. And man, did that picture just make sense to me. And it was beautiful. And it, it softened my heart. I mean, I suppose some people might read the Bible and it could harden their heart. Um, for me, it was, the Bible was like a, a hammer that was more of a tenderizing hammer. It tenderized my heart. It somehow made this story pierce its walls. And I was just, I, I went through a season of this search. Um, I say it lasted a long time, but in reality, it was only about two years because it was just so momentous to me. The, that two years was incredibly momentous. At the end of that season, I committed my life to Jesus. I wanted to take a quick break from our story and ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to talk about your faith in a more effective way, like C.S. Lewis? Who wouldn't? If so, I'd like to tell you about a special live stream event coming up with Randy Newman, another C.S. Lewis Institute host of the podcast, Questions That Matter. You might be familiar not only with his podcast, but also his wonderful book called Questioning Evangelism. Well, he's now written a new book called Near Evangelism, where he highlights the methods C.S. Lewis used for meaningful communication, such as storytelling, humor, imagery, and more. And he teaches us how we can use those methods in our own conversations. 
Randy will be talking about his new book in a live stream event on the evening of September the 24th. You will be equipped to talk about your faith and engage with unbelievers wisely, whatever their attitudes towards Christianity might be. You will also be given the opportunity to ask questions of him after a time of discussion with Joel Woodruff, the president of C.S. Lewis Institute. There's no doubt that Randy's winsome style and his deep commitment to sharing his faith will make for a very enjoyable learning experience. We hope you'll sign up. There's no charge for this event, but you do need to register. For more information, please go to cslewisinstitute.org forward slash mere hyphen evangelism. Now back to our story. So obviously you went on a very intentional intellectual pathway towards this investigation of Christianity, of the person of Jesus. You uh, reading the Bible I'm sure you were probably very surprised what you found in the Bible. There's so, we have so many stereotypes or caricatures of, you know, if you've never read the Bible before, what you think that it might be. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you were open. You could say it was a tenderizing hammer <laughs> towards you, so you allowed it to affect you. It did its work on you. It did its um, work. And you found, yeah, you found the person of Jesus. Yeah, he, he is a man. He is such a fascinating character. I mean, as you know, but um, I mean, you read the things that he says, um, and then you try and understand and unpack those and think about it. What it meant to the first century hearer, to the person that may have grown up with all of the um, Hebrew scriptures in mind, um, and then man, he said some tough stuff, some really hard things. Um, I remember listening to a, a a class from that church about the hard sayings of Jesus, and wow, that really just hit me about, you know, he wasn't this, you know, meek and mild all the time character. He was dynamic. There were a lot of things that he said, which are still so challenging to me. And then to think that, um, you know, he's not after just my actions. He's after my heart. You know, he wants, he wants to build a new heart from within such that my actions and personality and things that come out of that heart um, reflect his Holy spirit. Um, there are just so many beautiful things that I'm still so enamored with him and especially with the cross. I mean, that was, that was the thing that really worked for me is the cross. I didn't not, I did not understand the virgin birth. I didn't understand the resurrection. It wasn't even a focus of mine as when I became a Christian, it was all about the cross. The cross is the thing that melted me. This God who created everything with the word of his power loved me. He died for me. I'm, I'm a jerk. I'm a punk. I, <laughs> I do not deserve this at all. I know who I am and I am sinful and wicked. And yet he loved me this much. I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, but he, that is what worked for me. Um, and it, and I'm just so, I, I'm blessed and I'm thankful that he did that for me. It's a, a beautiful explanation of the gospel there that you know, none of us are deserving. Um, and it's not about do's and don'ts, mm. right? It's not about rules like the, the religion you had experienced 
earlier in your life, but it was so much more than that in the person of Christ. Now, so I can I can imagine uh, someone listening and saying, you know, the stories sound good, and you can believe that. Uh, but what you know, the Bible obviously you were open to it, but you know, there's so many things wrong with the Bible. I mean, did you? It's not reliable. The text, you know, and it was written late, and Jesus is legendary, and you know, all of these things were added. And did you have to? Did you have to resolve those those um, those controversial statements by the new atheists? Were were some of those? I mean, how were you trying to tease all of that out? That yeah. In the one sense, you were being drawn by the story and by the scripture and by what Christianity is as you were understanding it. But on the other hand, all of these counter-arguments to it, um, how were you navigating through all of that? Yeah, I, I think while I was reading the New Testament, I was also uh, listening to classes that talked about the history of the Bible, the collection of the Bible. Can we trust these books? Uh, those that was the name of the class was, can we trust the books? Um, and so I was reading and listening to these classes um, at the same time. So I think I, I wouldn't have the context. I don't, I think I, let me rephrase. I think I needed the context in order to fully read the New Testament for me, for it to really resonate with me. I needed to know that the books were trustworthy. And there is a lot of wonderful reasons to trust this. Um, not only just the number of copies of things that we have, but the the differences are so meaningless um, between the different copies that there's a lot of great reasons and research to put your trust that this is uh, this is what recorded. Uh, this was recorded well, and there's even great scholarship, scholarly research right now about, you know, the hidden things in in the New Testament. The hidden meaning, um, there's not. Uh, maybe Mark doesn't explain something that John does. Um, they all have a, a, a tight story when you think about all of the different ways that they interact with each other, and that gave it more credibility to me. I also needed to get over the science question in my mind before I could really hear the New Testament. And so that was one of the first obstacles that I had to overcome was I came in thinking science was the sole arbiter of truth. And I needed to kind of understand that there were limits to science. And I had to let go of that belief that science was the king. Instead, I... In seeing that there were limits to science, I came to understand that maybe science and religion are a little more like sibling rivals. They sort of challenge and enlighten each other, but they're both in pursuit of truth. And I know that science can't answer so many things. I mean, even the the house of the scientific materialist is built on a foundation of faith. There are tons of faithful commitments um, from the scientific materialist. Uh, I don't need to go into all of those now, but uh, there are plenty of assumptions, let's say, going into such a belief. And so both of those things were hurdles for me in order to really hear what the text of the New Testament was saying. 
So you had to really believe that it was worthy of belief um, <laughs> from an intellectual a credibility perspective uh, before you could embrace it personally, I would imagine, um, that the question of God, that there were good answers to, to believe uh, that he exists and that his name is Jesus and that Jesus is worthy of belief. And I think probably one of the biggest hurdles that you may have had to jump over was that whole Oh, that whole um, autonomy thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because, you know, it's it's more when you come to the cross, you know, you spoke the cross, and you come to the person of Jesus, he's giving you a beautiful gift of forgiveness and life and meaning and all of those things you're searching for. But at in, in the process of doing that, it's... it's it's a, the process of coming forward and surrendering. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, as he surrendered himself for you, you surrender yourself to him. That means your will, your independence, your control. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm curious, after years of living with the, the sense of autonomy and independence that you had, was it hard to lay that down? And what did he? What do you think that you got in exchange for that? Oh, it's continually hard to let it down. <laughs> I still, <laughs> you know, desire control, and you know, the, that's not something that easily goes away. Um, it's a daily battle. But um, you know, at the same time, I was uh, when I went to church Sunday after nine eleven. The pastor there was a world-renowned C.S. Lewis scholar. Um, and he would go around the, the world talking about C.S. Lewis. And so it didn't take long for me to pick up mere Christianity. And um, his chapter about pride was such a pivotal moment in my journey. I mean, that pride is basically the chief of all sins that, you know, all of their sins in comparison are like flea bites. Man, did that really just rock my world? I did not think pride was a bad thing. Um, and turning that on its head opened my eyes to how selfish I was. Um, like I said, I wanted to be God. I wanted to be in charge of all of these things. But, um, you know, in my conversion, I really just had to take this really sober look at reality. I, the reality that I, someday I'm going to die. I can't prevent that. Um, in fact, the whole world will end according to science, you know, uh, in the heat depth of the universe. Um, that uh, I'm sinful, that God's holy, um, that I'm super prideful, that I have this great and almost unquenchable desire for control, and that my heart is this uh, selfish idol factory. This was, this was my sober look at reality. So in order to hear the good news, I had to recognize the bad news. Um, I had to see the darkness to appreciate the light. And you know, Lewis really helped me with that in the terms in, in describing what pride was and that I needed to relinquish. And it's, again, I say a daily battle to do this, but I know who's in control. I know that I'm not in control. It doesn't take long for me uh, to go about my morning before I realize that's the case. And so that is, that's why I'm on this very long and bumpy road uh, called sanctification 
where I'm trying to be more and more like Jesus and failing left and right, but giving it back to him and trying as hard as I can to let the Holy Spirit be the light that shines out. It is a process. It's a, it is an ongoing process. Oh, it's a struggle for us all. Yes. As you have also moved into Christianity and embracing the reality of God, and you're also embracing, I imagine, as you've been speaking of the relevance of God in your life. Now, from an existential perspective, as a teenager, you were depressed because of the loss of meaning. You were you're grappling for where to find meaning, whether it was yourself or outside of yourself. So what did you find with regard to that big question that has been kind of a driving motivator of your life, not only what happens with death and after death, but also in life? Hmm. Yeah, so what is the meaning and purpose of life? I guess the more that I've dived into that question, I come to uh, uh, the same answer probably as a lot of folks of in the Christian world, I should say, a lot of folks in the Christian world that my purpose is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to have a relationship. I think relationships are the, the meaning of life. Um, and that you can think of that almost in, in terms of the 10 commandments too. You want a relationship upward, like a cross, the, the pointing upward part of the cross is to God. You want that relationship first. You want a relationship from side to side with, uh, your friends, your neighbors, your family, you want it in the middle with yourself and you want it down below with the earth, with uh, things that, um, that exist in this world that you're what we're supposed to be good stewards of. And so all of this is um, relational, relational, sorry, relational in so many ways, just like God is relational, I- inherently relational. And man, does that just make so much sense to me um, in so many ways. And I would imagine because uh, you have gone on in your life, not only to explore and, and the depths and riches of these relationships vertically, horizontally with the world, um, with, our, with yourself, actually, that you have found deep meaning and purpose, but I know of you that you've also done a lot of uh, writing and work with apologetics to the point that you've actually written down what you found have found to be compelling evidence for the existence of God. I'll hold up your book here. Oh. It's called um, Trading Gods, A Rationale for Faith. Um, tell me what led you to write this book and its contents are superb for anybody who's listening. I would encourage you to pick up uh, this book that provides just a very cogent, um, clear, accessible uh, reasons for the reality of God. What drove you to write that book? I really didn't want to write a book, to be honest. It was It's so hard to write a book. Um, what I wanted to do was just teach a class at church. Uh, I, again, I've already mentioned this a few times, but I benefited so much from those classes at church many of which I didn't attend in person, but I, I caught the audio archive of it and listened to it on my commute. And it was so influential in my spiritual journey that um, I wanted to pay it forward to the next generation of spiritual seekers. And 
so I wrote the book as a, um, as a, um, not a memoir, but a, basically as a, a way of, of how I got from, uh, being a nun to being a Jesus follower and all of the different things that I had to, um, combat, to address, uh, along that way. I mean, this is the book that I wish I had when I was 23, 24 and nine 11 just hit, um, Again, I benefited so much from people going down a path before me and then reporting it back to me that I'm hoping this book will do the same for someone else. I, 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 I'm sure that it will, and I hope those who are listening or watching will, will take a look at Brian's book, Trading God, Trading Gods. Um, it's it's, it's an f- excellent book if you're a seeker, a skeptic, or a Christian who wants to build more confidence in, in your faith. I'm also curious at this time of your conversion, were you married at that time and I'm, uh, or not? And I'm curious how your family um, embraced this newfound faith. Actually, probably they watched you over that two-year period, uh, but I wondered how your family and our friends accepted you, especially in this very secularized culture. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting question because, again, for a secular community like Seattle, where no one really wants to talk about religion that much, that um, my conversion meant a lot to a few people and didn't mean a lot to most people. It was, um, oh, he's into that now. Interesting. Okay. It's a hobby or something on the side, not knowing just how radically it changed my life. Again, this is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book too, is for my friends and family, because I wanted them to be able to read something that gave a really good comprehensive case for the God hypothesis, that uh, why I believe what I believe is not just um, a, a, not just a whim, but it has a really, really strong foundation. And this is how I'm going about addressing these big questions of life. And I know you're probably my friends and family that don't believe. I know they probably don't have great answers to these or they're questioning it themselves, but maybe they also don't want to have a conversation about, about it, but maybe they'll read the, read the book. Maybe they'll approach these at their own pace. And so after teaching a class at church, um, I realized that the book was the next thing that I had to do <laughs> and um, spent the next couple of years putting that all together. It, it really is a worthwhile read. Um... I'd like to pause for a moment and ask you a favor. If you're enjoying the Side B podcast or find these stories helpful, would you please leave us a review and rating wherever you download these episodes? Your feedback helps other people find these stories, and we genuinely appreciate your support. Now back to our story. Speaking of... of life change how would you describe your life and how it has really changed since you embraced god's existence in christ as being king of the universe essentially yeah um i think before i was a christian you know i was just easily persuaded that um, truth was relative that science held all the answers and all religions led to god i mean i thought that view was maybe the most loving interpretation of reality Um, but I think, um, it was a perspective full of contradictions too. 
So it was like a spineless tolerance instead of actual truth and real love. And I realized that I wanted to pursue actual truth and real love. So when I reflect kind of on that time in my life, I I feel like I was emotionally immature. Um, I wanted all religions to be true, so I wouldn't have to do all the hard work to figure out which one I wanted, as well as to have something that might limit my freedoms or that might isolate me from my friends and family. Um, I also think that before becoming a Christian, I was maybe a, a more of a shadow of a real man, you know, an apparition that, you know, was generally apathetic to almost everything in life, everything in life that mattered, um, with the exception of one thing. And that was myself. But, um, I mean, I I had no conception, uh, of whether there was a cause worth fighting for maybe a, a naive little boy that just wanted to do things my way. And, um, and my way almost had nothing to do with truth, love, or beauty, um, or virtue. Now that I'm a Jesus follower, like I want to pursue those things. I want to pursue truth, beauty, and virtue. Um, I acknowledge I'm still, you know, a wretched sinner, completely dependent on the love, grace, and mercy of a savior. But, you know, now I'm, I'm on this path that I'm hoping will result in fruit being born somewhere that, um, that these investments are in my time and energy are exactly what the Holy spirit wants me to be doing because they will help somebody just like somebody helped me. People I didn't even meet helped me so much. Um, that's what I'm feeling called to do. What a beautiful story, Brian. Um, so articulate and, so forthcoming in the way that you 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 talk about yourself um, and how you were and the things that you were searching for the depths of your despair even in, in, as a teenager but how far you've come but I also appreciate I think the diligence and the t- intentionality of your search you were really looking for something and you did due diligence really to to search for the answers and I hope that others will will be inspired and challenged uh, by your stories if if there are curious skeptics who are listening or watching to this podcast to your story and are curious about God maybe they have had an event it may not be 9/11 but there may be other things in their lives that have sobered them to the possibility of or of, of even asking questions. Is there something more? Is there someone more? Is there something different than I know? Um, what would you say to someone like that who might be listening in? First of all, I love the name of the podcast. I suppose, you know, my first musical experience with listening to the other side of the record, well, I guess for me it was a tape, but listening to the other side of the tape happening back in 1992. I mean, you know, I was just a teenage punk in Seattle when my city exploded with what became known as grunge music. And I bought the the tape, the single for Pearl Jam's Jeremy. And I really connected with that song. It was a it's a dark song about, you know, teenage angst and school violence. But on the other side of Jeremy is this beautiful song called Yellow Leadbetter. And it is it's such a beautiful song, even though the lyrics are almost entirely inaudible. But um, you know, when I was at a Pearl Jam concert about eight years ago, uh, and they were going out for their encore, 
no one wanted to hear Jeremy. They all wanted to hear Yellow Ledbetter. And it brought the audience together, brought the audience and the band together in such a beautiful and, dare I say, transcendent kind of way. And so, you know, my point here is flip the side of something dark can be something beautiful. And, but let me try and address this in a more practical way. You know, my, I think in my, my initial approach with a non-believer is to really try and build some trust, um, be a good friend, you know, be sincere with my questions about, and really be sincere with my curiosity. Um, and hopefully through that interchange, we can come to some area of commonality, you know, an area that tends not to be all that controversial is just to say that the pursuit of truth is a noble and, and important endeavor. And hopefully that's a good starting point. You know, another method to find common ground is maybe just to express that we all have faith beliefs. I, I talked about the, uh, the scientific materialists that there's a lot of faith behind their belief and it may not be so hard to point that out, but that can work with people of other religions, with agnostics too. We're all in this, in this place where we do not have, um, um, absolute knowledge with indisputable evidence. And so I, I think when it comes to things that really matter in life, that is especially the case, things like first and last things we do not know. Um, uh, things like how we should live. There's a lot of uh, uh, faith built into those kinds of, of, of dilemmas. So, but is there really a more important and fundamental question than is there a God? I mean, that was the thing that, that was the question for me was who was Jesus? And I think the answer to that question just has ramifications for every other question in life. So ideally, I, I want to move the skeptic from a state of complacency to a state of curiosity. I want them to wonder what's on the other side of that record. You know, so in the book, I try and give my best case for the rationality of that by looking at all of the evidence and kind of coming to my, my conclusions. Um, and then somehow pointing all of these things to the Jesus story as this curious resolution to all of these big questions. I mean, certainly those, the Jesus story should raise their suspicions uh, that maybe there is something more to this. And so um, maybe a a worldview of of science only or materialist only or secular only just sort of has some serious gaps that maybe you can have them to be, uh, uh, get them to be a little more curious. And that maybe that this Jesus story is actually more credible. They already know it's more beautiful and more hopeful but is it more credible? And I think we can get them in that direction. I'm actually very impressed that since you live in a, a secular part of the United States in Northwest U.S. and Seattle, that you actually were given a gift, uh, like you say, uh, of a church next to the University of Washington that, that appreciated the mind, mm. that weren't threatened by the big questions that provide deep resources, whether it be a library or or classes or teachers, um, that they guided you in a way that you needed to find that credibility. I think so uh, so many seekers are looking, but they can't seem to find those kind of rich resources. So again, I'll point 
people back to your book <laughs> as well as you know, perhaps to the Bible or just keep looking because um, there there's so many wonderful thinkers who are dealing philosophically, scientifically, um, historically, archaeologically with these kind of issues. But I also appreciate your humility and our understanding of our own limitations. Not only science is limited, but we and our humanity are, are mm. limited. Um, but we're, we're, we're all seeking for the best explanation of reality. So I appreciate that about you. So, Brian, uh, when if you were to address believers directly in terms of their role and uh, their influence and with with non-believers or those who are perhaps skeptical or nuns, you know, who don't seem to care even perhaps, uh, what would you advise Christians to do or to think or to be? Yeah. I think to the Christian, um, well, let me just say a few times a year, I try to ask myself this question, what breaks my heart? And then to lean into that heartbreak, um, thinking about how, I can help, or how can I be used by the Holy Spirit? I think a person's answer to that question is going to change during different seasons of their life. But one thing that breaks my heart right now is that there are so many nominal Christians out there. I mean, the polling data seems to suggest that the average Christian in the pews has a rather flimsy understanding of what they believe and why they believe it. And that we've collectively been sort of drifting away from those core orthodox beliefs, um, probably swayed by the whims of the culture or the arguments of the new atheists. Um, so it's no wonder that, you know, many people tend to fall away from their faith when they enter the secular university or enter the secular job force, um, or when they simply just befriend a, an intelligent skeptic or an atheistic professor. Um, I think there are just far too many Christians out there whose faith is like a house built on sand. And, or maybe to use a better um, a reference would be Jesus's parable of the sower in which some people hear the word and they believe, but because they have sh uh, shallow roots, as soon as they're tested, they fall away from their faith. And honestly, that that's what really breaks my heart right now. Um, because it just seems like, uh, those who fall away so quickly upon fairly shallow um, challenges is that they don't know how well Christianity addresses the tough questions. I mean, they've been raised on a diet of milk, but even as adults, they're still drinking milk and what they need is meat. And Christianity just has this super long and distinguished tradition of pursuing and defending the truth. And it is meat. It's beautiful. It's encouraging. And I just, in my thinking, if, if they only knew the strength of the, their foundation in faith, they'd be better equipped to talk to their skeptical friends, to talk to the nuns out there. Um, if more Christians were encouraged by this intellectual history of our faith and the soundness of the arguments and our claims as Christians, then having these discussions with non-believers can just feel so much more natural. It can be less intimidating. Um, we have to do this, of course, with gentleness and respect. But um, I, that would be my encouragement to the Christian out there is get familiar with some of this, this stuff because once you're armed with that, you don't have to use it as a weapon. 
it, you use it as an encouragement. And that way you can bring up these types of topics with those skeptics out there. That's wonderful. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Brian, for telling your story, your wisdom, your advice. It's all been so amazing, truly, to see the change in your life and just the dedicated purpose and meaningful direction that you've taken. It's obvious that you see your, your life as something bigger than yourself. So thank you for coming on board today. Thanks, Jenna. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Side B Podcast to hear Brian's story. You can find out more about his book, Trading Gods, A Rationale for Faith, and his website in the episode notes. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me by email at thesidebepodcast at cslewisinstitute.org. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll follow and share this podcast with your friends and social network. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be seeing how another skeptic flips the record of their life.